Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you for your patience and welcome to uh, the first night of our new series, uh, which is called Minim Stories in the Babylonian Talmud, Heretics and the Jewish Christian Literary Dialogue of Late Antiquity um, with Dr. Michal Barasher Sigal. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, stories of heretics in rabbinic literature, which are a really interesting and important um, example of, or sort of current example of the rabbis engaging with another. Uh, and we're going to be looking at conflicts over the interpretation of verses, um, which of course the rabbis always win the argument. Um, and we're going to look at the polemical language um, and all sorts of uh, materials, both Christian and Jewish um, literature to explore this really interesting topic. Uh, Dr. Barashel Sigal is a scholar of rabbinic Judaism, focusing on um, Jewish Christian interactions in the ancient world um, and, com and comparing between um, early Christian and rabbinic sources. She is a faculty member at the Goldstein Gorin Department of Jewish Thought at Ben Gurion University in the Negev, of the Negev, sorry, and was an elected member of the Israel Young Academy of Sciences. Her first book is Early Christian Monastic Literature and the Babylonian Talmud, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2013 and won the 2014 Manfred Lautenschlager Award. Her second book is Jewish Christian Dialogues on Scripture in Late Antiquity, Heretic Narratives of the Babylonian Talmud. And that was also Cambridge University Press and it was published in 2019 and a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Um, so I'm really excited for this talk and I wanna let us jump right in, but I just wanna give a few quick reminders, please. We'd love to see your face. I'm, uh, you, I will be um, periodically inviting people to join as panelists, which will just allow you to uh, show your faces. Um, and we'd love to, yeah, we'd love for you to turn on your cameras um, and you can raise your hand to ask a question or put it in the chat. We ask that you stay on mute uh, during the class um, when you're not speaking. Uh, and I think, I think that's about it and we can jump in. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the warm welcome and, and hi everyone. Um, I am very thrilled and excited to uh, be speaking here at Drisha and doing this three-part series. And basically what I want to explore today is stories about heretics in the Babylonian Talmud. And the way I want to do it is I want to use this first, um, first meeting, right, out of the three, uh, to introduce the, the, the topic in general and talk specifically about insults and the way heretics are called and discussed and the, the term heretic, and then use the next two lessons to actually learn um, stories about heretics are we introducing in this way try to um, address the entire topic of heretic stories in the Babylonian Talmud. Um, I, I, I welcome questions and remarks and, and, and anything you want to uh, say. It, it feels sometimes a little bit lonely to talk to my computer. So I, I really encourage you that if you have any questions to put them in the chat and, and uh, ask them or, or make any comments or even even after the class is done, if you have any lingering questions and want to know some more, you're more than welcome to uh, send me an email and, and address me. I'll, I'll be very happy to give them. Okay, so uh, let's start by topic for today. So what I want to do basically is talk about uh, heretic stories in the Talmud and um, uh, through that um, address the wider issues of Jews and Christians in late antiquity. So when we're talking about the time of the Talmud, we're talking about um, a time period where um, the, uh, the, oh, sorry, no, to do, sorry, let's do it again. 
apologize. Let's see, screen disappeared. Sorry. Okay, so when we're talking about the ancient world and we're talking about um, the, uh, the, the rabbis living in that uh, uh, time period, we're talking about two, two empires, right? So we have the uh, Western Empire, which is the Roman Empire, in which uh, the land of Israel is its most, uh, Eastern province, right? And we have a second empire to the right, which is the Persian Empire. And that time period, we're, we're talking about uh, the, the Talmudic period. It's called the Sasanian Empire, based on the Sasanian dynasty that ruled that empire for that time period. And this is the area that I want to focus on. When we're talking about Jews and Christians in the ancient world, we're talking about uh, those two areas, or those two empires. And the thing is that the Roman Empire in the fourth century becomes Christian. Right? It, 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 uh, uh, the beginning of the fourth century, Constantine makes the Roman Empire, uh, makes Christianity the, the official religion of the empire. So the question is, what happens in this area? And the reason that I'm interested in that area is because, as you can see here, the Persian Gulf, right, and the two rivers leading into it, the Euphrates and Tigris, this is the area where the Jews live, right? The Babylonian community of, uh, of, of that area lives between those two. I, I, I zoomed into this area, this area here, and the, uh, the Jews here, the Persian Gulf and the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the Jews live in between those rivers. This is the area where the Jews live, and this is the area where the Babylonian Talmud has been... Uh, produced, redacted over uh, um, uh, hundreds of years, and finally, probably around the 6th century, 6th or 7th century, uh, redacted in its final form that um, we, we've learned to, to, to accept and know from uh, medieval manuscripts. But this is the area. And the question is, can the Babylonian Talmud teach us about Jewish-Christian interaction? Does the Talmud bear evidence to interaction between Jews and Christians? And, in, and if so, in what way? What does it do? What does it tell us about Jewish-Christian interaction? And there's a few ways to approach that question. Uh, but when we're, we're looking at the Babylonian Talmud, right, uh, the, the assumption in research for a very long time was that the Babylonian Talmud actually is not a player in this academic game. It actually cannot tell us about, about Christianity because if we're looking at Christianity, we should look for the Roman Empire, again, because in the fourth century it becomes Christian. So if we're looking at Jewish-Christian interaction, there, that's where we should be looking for Christianity, Jewish-Christian interaction in the Palestinian Talmud, in Palestinian uh, Middle Shem. This is where we should look for Jewish-Christian interaction. The Babylonian Talmud was kind of put aside. The assumption was also that because Christianity was not the ruling class, and you could see scholars such as Ulbach in the 50s and others saying, well, there are no Christians in that area, so why... Why would there be Jewish-Christian interaction? When in fact, the truth is that this assumption is actually not at all true. And this is a map done, notice how late this was done. This is done by Julian in 2010 of, Jew, uh, of Christian areas and, 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 and uh, um, we have villages and we have monasteries of Christian uh, population in that same area of the Jews. So if we, again, we're looking at the at the Persian Gulf and the two rivers leading into it, and this is the narrow area where we said the Jews were living in, and this is a map of Christians uh, living in that area. So again, the question 
needs to be asked, and I think this is something new that's been happening in Lebanon around the last 20 years or so, now we start looking at this map and we're saying, okay, our assumption that Christianity shouldn't matter in Lebanon and Talmud based on geographical area or proximity is not true. In fact, Christians were very much present in that same area. So again, what's the connection between Jews and Christian? And just to show you that every time I'm teaching this and I have to show those two maps, uh, I needed to create, and I did a few months ago, created for the first time a map that actually overlapped those two maps. So if you're looking at the Persian Gulf and the two rivers leading up to it, what I did is I took the, the uh, Christian communities from Julian map and I took the, the, the Jewish uh, communities from Oppenheimer's map, the first one I map, and overlapped them one on the other. And again, I'm not a cryptographer and no one should take this too seriously, but I just did it to demonstrate something that wasn't done in research before. This is the first time that this kind of a map was ever done, overlapping Jewish and Christian uh, population one on top of the other and just showing how close in close proximity they live. And just to show you just one very, very important area, this area where the Jews are, you can see Seleucic Pasiphon, it's just a little bit small on this map. It was actually a very, very important Christian uh, community and actually the, the, the capital of the Christian area. And it was just across the river from Mahosa where the Jews live. So again, the Jews and Christians live side by side. And the question that I want to ask today, and I'm asking my researchers, you know, what are the connections between Jews and Christian living side by side? And especially when they create the Babylonian Talmud, in what way does the Babylonian Talmud um, uh, portray that interaction between them? Now, I, the, the, the three meetings that I'm going to do starting today and then the next two weeks actually have to do um, with my second book, not my first, and the second book focused specifically on one corpus of stories, which are the stories about heretics or minim in the Babylonian Talmud. And uh, these are stories that deal basically, um, they all uh, share a very uh, similar structure uh, where a heretic or a mean comes in and asks a question of a rabbinic figure and the rabbinic figure always wins that debate. And we have a lot of those stories and my book tried to pick up on a few of those which have something in shared in common and we'll talk about it in a second and ask what did these stories tell me about Jewish-Christian interaction, which I think uh, it can and it does, and we should learn them and, and see what they tell us about them. So when we talk about, let's talk a little bit about terminology and what we'll, we'll focus most of our attention today. When we're talking about the word minim, or uh, singular for mean, right? It literally means a heretic, and minut means heresy. Now the question is, uh, this, this word appear out of nowhere, we don't know, uh, where this word came from, because the word mean originally means sort of some sort, uh, uh, but to refer to uh, a heretic only appears in rabbinic literature out of the blue. We don't know where it came, what its etymology and scholars debate that. But in any case, it looks from the context that this is what it means, right? Some kind of heresy. And, and the question is, um, what do they mean when they say heresy, right? So who are those heretics? Who are those heretics that appears in the stories where you have a mean coming in and asking a question and debating something, usually over a biblical scripture or something of the sort, with a rabbinic figure? What what is what is this heretic? Who is this heretic? Who who does it who does it represent? So uh, scholars now believe that there were attempts to try to identify those heretics as Christians, as Gnostics, as 
but ultimately we seem to think those heretics represent different kinds of heretics every single time depending on the context right so there's different kinds of layers in rabbinic literature and every time it depicts something else but the question is for me and this is what i want to deal today is they are all called heretics they're all called a mean meaning the rabbinic literature represents that uh, heretical figure even though it's not every time it represents something else, it's represented as a whole as a heretic. Now, while heretics appear or minim appears in rabbinic literature in all of rabbinic literature, the vast majority, really by far, appears in the Babylonian Talmud and not in other sources. So this is the Babylonian Talmudic phenomenon. Again, from that geographical area where we started, this is where these stories are found in, in, uh, in the corpus, the Babylonian Talmud that came out of that area, and most of the stories are there. Now, the, the my book, which I, I showed you, deals with some of the stories in Hulin, in Brachot, in Yevamot, and deal with two of them in the following weeks. Uh, but what's interesting about the, the stories that uh, um, I, I will deal with, that they have something in common. They have a literary structure in which a mean, a heretic, comes in and asks a question of a rabbinic figure over a biblical story, a question that looks at first sight stupid or easily refutable, very, very easy question to answer. And indeed, the rabbinical figure says, this is not a good question, you know, it's easy to answer, but uses in these answers the, the term fool. So you can see here in Hebrew, or here, Shatya, right? Or here in this story, right? So we have the term fool, or Shatya in Aramaic, to where the rabbinic figure calls the heretic a shote or a Shatya. And calling that figure by this name precedes the argument over the biblical interpretation, right? So you are a fool for asking this question over this biblical interpretation and then an answer is given. What bothered me in my book was, why do we keep these stories, right? If these are such easily refutable claims, why would anyone keep them in the tongue? Why are we in 2022, uh, sit here in Grisha via Zoom and learn this story? Uh, uh, why was this kept? And what I try to offer in my book, and this is what we'll do uh, today in the next two weeks, is try to offer that these stories actually represent an attempt to deal with Christian claims of the time. Meaning these stories represent an actual literary dialogue with Christian claims over this biblical story. And what's interesting to me is that these stories look stupid to us because we're missing the Christian interpretation on the verse. But once that knowledge is brought into the reading of the story and we have that knowledge of the christian interpretation of the verse all of a sudden the uh dialogue between the heretic the mean and the rabbis look all of a sudden completely different looks uh we know its meaning we know its intended uh, uh outcome we know the anxiety we know the two sides of it and the story looks completely different and then hence the answer why it was kept it was kept because it's a mirror or it represents rabbinic engagement with contemporary Christian uh, claims. But what we'll do today is something that interested me, meaning I created this mini corpus of stories where I created, collected all those stories together because they contain that element of calling the heretic a fool, shote. And we started with a different nickname. 
a mean, a heretic. And I want to talk about those two things. When the rabbis talk about early Christians, which is what I'll claim in my, in my book and when I claim in the lecture series, they're dealing with Christian or early Christian interpretation of scripture. And they're putting this, you know, in the mouth of a heretic, a literary figure. But they call him a heretic. They call him a mean. And they also call him a fool. And I'm interested in these nicknames and these insults. And this is what I want to spend our, a little bit of time today. So why, what were those insults are, are, are useful? So let's talk a little bit about the insults fool. So fool or shoteh in rabbinic literature appears in two ways. The first is a legal category. So fool is someone who is um, mentally impaired uh, in some way or other. Uh, is usually grouped together with other what they consider mentally impaired, such minors or uh, um, deaf and, 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 or someone who's uh, uh, has uh, difficulty hearing or uh, someone whose uh, vision is impaired. So we have uh, 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 we have uh, these grouped together in rabbinic literature often. Uh, and, and so in this category, Shoteh is someone who is mentally impaired according to rabbinic literature and many times the rabbi will say okay so this is a commandment this is the mitzvah that you need to do and then the rabbis will ask well does does these group of people who are what we consider mentally impaired obligated to do it by the way often grouped together with another subcategory that was considered mentally impaired women right so a lot of the time women are also grouped in together in that group so they're asking, uh, uh, um, uh, so full is used as a category to talk what to talk about a legal obligation, right? What's the scope of the legal obligation? Who's obligated to do a certain thing? So that's one use of full. There's a second use of the term full, and this is the one that I'm interested in today, which is used as an insult, right? Like we're going to see in the, the, the heretic stories, when you call someone a fool, you call, you're saying to him, shote. Or shatya, right? When you call someone a fool, you use it as an insult. And that category is much, much more rare. This is something that we see very rarely in, 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 in uh, rabbinic literature. And, and that some of the cases where we see that a fool, uh, uh, it's used for specific groups. Again, found very rarely, but you can see them for, against specific groups. For example, Sadducees or Galileans, right? Which are full and known to be full. Um, but sometimes we have it against specific people. So most famously, a person that's called a fool in rabbinic literature is Jesus. So one of the very famous passages in Tractate Shabbat, um, the, the rabbis try to, to talk about the twos on Shabbat, and they bring Jesus as an example. And the, and the rabbinic answer is we don't learn anything halakhic from Jesus as a figure because he was a fool. And we don't learn anything from fools. We connect, I have any. Uh, a proof from fool. So Jesus is labeled a fool. In what way is Jesus a fool, right? So what, what does fool mean? Does it mean someone's stupid? This is all that it means? I want to delve a little bit more into that and put it together with a heretic, right? With a mean, right? What, what does it mean to call someone a mean? What does it mean to call someone a mean, right? And what does it mean to call someone a fool? Does it mean someone mentally impaired? Or does it mean something about the vision? And I think calling Jesus a fool leads us a little bit towards that. Another source that might be worth mentioning here is uh, a Mishnah in New York when we talk about a Kaviyah ben Alalel, a famous rabbi who refused to go back on 
um, a legal saying that he was saying, and someone told him, you know, the rabbis are saying, you know, we can't, you know, take it back. Don't say that. Four things. And he says, I refuse to because I rather be called a fool and not called evil or, or someone who's mean. Again, does fool mean someone who's stupid? What does fool mean? Right? So I, I, I want to I wanna delve more into the term or the insult fool and what exactly it means. Now, in order to do that, I want to go into other insults that are used in the same time period, in Second Temple period, in the beginning of, of, of in rabbinic period. And in that latent context, what kind of slurs or insult do we see being used? So fool is actually something that is being used. And the first, the first text that I want to look at is actually a text from the New Testament. This is found in Matthew, Matthew 23, where Jesus is very, very upset with the Pharisees. And he, he starts yelling at them. And look what he says. He says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And look at where I highlighted his insults. So he's, he's full of insults and he's called them hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? And says Jesus, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Right? You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Right? So you're teaching them the wrong things and you're closing the kingdom of heaven to them, says Jesus. But you're also hypocrites. Why? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and he called them hypocrites. And notice again, now what kind of insult is going to use? Woe to you, blind guides. So he calls them hypocrites. He called them blind. And then he calls them not just blind, but blind fools. Remember, I'm looking for the word fool. That's the word I'm looking for in the, in the, in the Greek. This is more, right? Or how it, it became into it came into English, uh, moron. This is the word that Jesus used, more. And this is this is the word for fool. So he calls them blind fools and hypocrites. And again, it says again, you blind men, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind guides, right? You are blind and you're guiding others into blind ways. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, blind Pharisees. It's very sense. It's a very angry. Uh, chapter, woe to you, teachers of the law, hypocrites, then hypocrites, and again hypocrites. But among the, so notice the, the, the insults that Jesus used. And this is something that I want to take and, and move on from here. When Jesus calls the Pharisees and he calls them out and what he considered to be wrong guidance and, 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 and that they're saying the wrong things and they're leading he uses the word uh, fool and he used the word blind fools and he uses the word hypocrite. And so for me, when I, and don't forget, we keep, we keep asking, I want to go back to my heretic stories and want to ask about the term school, how it's used and what is it used for. I basically want to try and, and, and build a case to say, when I look at school, at the way it's used in rabbinic literature elsewhere, such as against Jesus, or we're going to talk And then I move on to other writers, other, other testimonies of, of tradition at that time period, we see that Jesus uses fool in a very specific semantic uh, field, right? Some understanding of the terms, there's insult. They have to do with misunderstanding, guiding people the wrong way, right? So Jesus is a fool because he goes in the wrong way. And Akavya Mama says, 
something about misunderstanding and saying the wrong interpretation. And here as well, Jesus, when he turns to the Pharisees, he said to them, you are hypocrites, right? So you do, you're saying something and you do something else. You're just two people straight. He uses the word fools again. So fool is not stupid in the terms of mentally impaired, but more that has something to do more with misunderstanding of scripture. And I, I wanna I wanna take this and, and, and use another and bring into the fore another insult. So we did fools and we did hypocrites and we did heresy, right? Heretics. Now I want to do some more. I want to turn to another term called Dolce Halakul, which is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, appears um, together in with the with, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are also not very nice about um, a group which they call Dolce Halakul. They call themselves the Sons of Light, and they don't like other groups of their time, and they call them by nicknames. And the group that aligns the best with what we know as the Pharisees are called often, they don't appear, they don't, they're not called Pharisees, they're constantly called Dolce Chalakot. This is how it appears in Hebrew, Dolce Chalakot. And the question is, what does that mean? What does that insult mean, Dolce Chalakot? Now, it's found together in conjunction with other insults, steers of the seat or interpreters of falsehood, the ones who bartered God's law, for flattering words, so the question is, how do you interpret those people who are, I don't know, learners or seekers of smooth things, right, as in smooth, or is there something else happening here? Because if we look at the way it's used in conjunction with other uh, insults such as seers of the seat or interpreters of falsehood, we see again, just like we saw in the New Testament with the other insults, that this insult has something to do with interpretation of the law, with the right way to, to, to perform a commandment, the right way to perform uh, um, um, the Torah, to, the right way to do Torah, the way we interpret scripture. And so again, looks to be in that, again, semantic field of not seekers of smooth things, which, you know, doesn't mean much, but rather those who give false interpretation of scriptures. So again, what I'm trying to basically put together is that we have in Second Temple period a bunch of insults. If we group them together in rabbinic literature in Second Temple, among them hypocrites and fools and that from the context look to mean something that has to do with misinterpretation of scripture or going at it the wrong way or doing something wrong in the sense of interpreting scripture the wrong way that will lead to some kind of heresy or something of the sort. Now, by the way, here I want to give credit to, to a very old article, a very short and old article by uh, someone named Nahum Bonzi, which I found in article and I found it to be extremely illuminating and, and I haven't seen it quoted often. I think it that didn't receive a lot of attention, but I found it to be extremely helpful to me. He suggests that the term Doshe Halakot actually has something to do with the word Halak and the way it's understood in rabbinic literature. Now, says uh, 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 this guy, Bonsnik, says, um, if you look at other rabbinic uses of the word Halak as empty uh, and rather than smooth, 
So in the Chalaki model, Hebrew means smooth, but in uh, uh, rabbinic Hebrew says, uh, if you look at rabbinic literature, you can actually see halak to mean empty or without content. So for example, you see a page called Niyar Chalak. So Niyar Chalak doesn't mean a smooth paper, it means a blank paper, something that has nothing in it, right? Empty, without content. Or uh, to take to leave you to, to leave empty-handed, or uh, um, so we see the use, the use of the term halak to mean to mean empty or without content. So says Menachem if we're looking at halak uh, as empty, and then we look at what does it mean an empty matter. So for example, in Genesis Rabbah, so take a look at this. We have a, a midrash that says. Uh, is not an empty matter to you, and if it is empty, it is from you. So again, we see here interpretation in rabbinic literature of the word rek to mean empty, right? But then, what does it mean to be empty? And this is it, because you are unable to interpret it. So we see in rabbinic literature the connection between the word empty and biblical interpretations. To, to be empty is to not know how to interpret scripture correctly. So, what if we take that meaning from rabbinic literature and cast it back on the second temple used in the Quran? Scrolls, those are the ones who study empty things. Now, notice this is a little bit of a wordplay on the word halachot, right? They say that they are the dolshe halachot, that they interpret halacha, but in fact, and this is the nickname that they're giving a slur, they are dolshe halachot, they actually do empty things, just like the Genesis Robert terms, right? So, says Brunswick, this is. A slur, that means these, the, the Pharisees are the ones who are the seekers, the ones who study empty things. They misinterpret scripture and they lead to, being, to it being empty. They say they do halakot, but in fact they do halakot, they do empty things. Notice, by the way, that I found in one place in Babylonian times, we actually we see a slur that Rabbi Yochanan says, to someone, to a heretic, it says, He says, You fool! Should not our full Torah be as convincing as your empty one? So here I even found use of the two slurs that I want to tell you today, both the use of halak or empty and fool together in the same sentence. Again, to mean something that has to do with a misinterpretation of scripture. So I want to I want to summarize everything that we saw, because we saw a lot. We saw, basically, I'm going to reach that. I basically wanted to show that if we take slurs or insults in the ancient world, such as and if we take this interpretation to mean the seekers or the studiers or the interpreters of empty Torah, and we take the slur or reka or to mean a fool, and we bind it together with Jesus' blind hypocrites and blind fools and hypocrites. 
all of this has to do all these slurs and all this all this insult in second temple and rabbinic period are all intended to mean something that has to do not with being mentally incapable being a fool doesn't mean to be stupid you can't understand you misunderstand scripture this is something completely different right when i call you when the rabbi call a heretic a mean heretic and accuse him of being a fool He's saying, not you you don't understand. He's saying you misunderstand. You're misinterpreting. Right? You're doing something that will lead to heresy by misinterpreting scripture. And this is in the same semantic field as Dolcher Kalakot in Qumran and Fool and Reka in Hypocrite. Right? So this is all about this, this semantic field of, of people who misunderstand scripture. This is what heresy is all about. And these insults are meant to convey that someone is, you know, uh, accusing the other party or accusing the other side of misinterpreting scripture, which is a very serious accusation. Now, let's talk a little bit about insults. We live in a world where insults are used very often. We live in a world of social networks and Twitter. We, we had a president of the United States who used his Twitter account to insult a lot of people. We uh, uh, see uh, people very uh, uh, quickly uh, turn to insults when they want to say something. This is something that we're very used to and hear it often. But we need to understand that insults, especially in the ancient world, when people took very seriously what they said and, and how they pronounced it. And this is where I, I, I turn to um, scholars of the New Testament who look at the words of Jesus. And for example, one of them, Nehre, says in, in a book about honor and shame, that insults we need to understand in the ancient world were real, genuine social weapons intended to cause serious injury. When someone accused someone of being a fool, of misinterpreting, misinterpreting scripture, of being a heretic, of being a mean. When we see that written in rabbinic literature, we should not take this as a, you know, whatever you call it, fool, stupid guy. No, this was a very serious matter. And by the way, it works very well with the fact that we find very little use of fool as insult. As I said, we see that as a legal category. We use it as an insult. It doesn't occur often. And it doesn't occur often because people use it very sporadically, very uh, 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 very little. Because when calling someone a fool, to mean a misinterpreter of scripture, to mean a heretic, that was a big deal. That was meant to cause social injury. In a society of shame and honor, they took seriously insults. This was something that you wouldn't use casually. You needed to take very seriously when you're doing it. And, and Don Garlickson, when he's looking at, uh, uh, at uh, the New Testament, he says a fool, the word fool used in Jesus to mean, like we saw, a, a blind fool, a blind hypocrite. Fool, said Don Garlington, is not aimed at one IQ, right? This is not someone who's stupid, says Garlington, but it's aimed at someone's Salvific condition or state of the soul. That is to say, the fool 
when you call someone a fool, you're saying you have no part in the kingdom of God. You will have no part in the eschatological kingdom of God. When you call someone a fool, you're doing something, you're, you're, you're making a judgment call on everything he says and saying you are a heretic, you will not inherit. So people use that very, very carefully. And when we see that written down, and again, in rabbinical literature, some calling a heretic a heretic, it means when you when rabbinical literature, when someone is being called a mean, a, a fool, when someone is being called a fool in, a, in, a, in an argument of a biblical interpretation, that's a big deal. He's being called a heretic. This is all part of the semantic deal. And again, in the New Testament, and in the that's is called when calling someone Dolshiach Hanakot, we're saying they've misunderstood scripture and they're leading people astray. These are heretics. And this is a serious accusation. And this is something that I wanted to speak. So basically, my conclusion is, in Second Temple sources and rabbinic literature, using calling someone a fool or a heretic is a semantic field that it's intimidating and an accusation concerning the proper understanding of Torah laws. When you call someone a fool or a heretic, you're, you, you're meaning to say you don't understand properly the laws of the Torah. You're an outsider. You're a heretic. You lead people astray. You misunderstand scripture. And central to this term is the use of the word empty, like we saw empty things there, or and the word fool, and the word heretic, and the word blind, and the word mean. All of these are part of the semantic field that's meant to portray a misunderstanding of Torah laws. So when we're talking about meaning stories and calling them a mean and using the term fool, should be understood in light of all of that background we just gave and parallel uses of insult in other literature. So when we turn next week and the week after that to learn two specific stories of heritage stories, we will do so bearing in mind that the story frame as a story meant to accuse the Christian understanding of scripture as heresy, as a misunderstanding of the law of the scripture, of the biblical interpretation of scripture, and call insulting the Christian figure in a term fool, and insulting the Christian figure in the term mean, has something to do with the understanding of scripture, the salvific, meaning of it, right? you misunderstand scripture, you won't have a part in the world to come. It's a very, very serious framing of the argument. Now, now I want to turn and say that not only this understanding is an important one for our bank literature, I think it also helps us solve, and this is what I offer in my book, it helps us solve a mystery. And this is when we're trying a little bit to study the text, because we haven't done a lot of that today. And this is what the text we're going to learn, look at now is actually from the New Testament. And this is from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, a very important passage in the New Testament. And in Matthew 5, Jesus uh, is very firm. He wants to be uh, more um, observant than what he knows from, um, from the commandments of his time. So he says, you say you shouldn't do that, but I say even more than that, you shouldn't do that. You sh you're not supposed to, to covet a, a woman. You can't even look at a woman. So Jesus goes to an extreme. This is what this old passage is all about. 
And while he's saying all that, one of the examples he gives of how you should actually do more than what the Torah asks you to is this example. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not murder. Now he goes to one of the Ten Commandments, you should not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment, right? So the Torah says no one should kill anyone. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's true. You're not supposed to kill anyone. But now I'm going to go one step further, says Jesus. And he says that. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is liable to judgment. Being angry is like murdering. Being angry at someone, your brother or your sister, makes you liable to the same judgment as a killer. So therefore, whoever says to his brother and sister, Reika, which is Aramaic for a fool, is liable to the council. Who is the council? Sunedriu, which is Sanedrin. And whoever says a fool, and this is the Greek word we know, more, right? The monster, or a fool, is liable to the hell of fire, Gehinom. So Jesus here says, listen, you're not supposed to kill anyone. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit murder. So comes Jesus along in a Sermon of the Mount, uh, a list of, 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 of passages where he says one should do more than, uh, than one's asked. He says when it says you should not commit murder, sorry, I'm When Jesus said, when the Torah says you're not supposed to commit murder, I want to include something else here, says Jesus. And I want to tell you that being angry is actually equivalent to killing. And more than that, says Jesus, and we have a parallel in rabbinic literature, right? Whoever uh, insults his brother is, is, is like a murderer. We actually have a parallel to that literature that pointed out by scholars. But Jesus says something very specific. He says, Let's look at what you do that deserves it to be called like murder. What, what makes you liable to the punishment of a murder? Whoever says to his friend, Reka, a fool, or if you call him a fool in Greek, Morin, he brings, there's it's a parallelism, brings one insult in Aramaic and one insult in Greek. But Jesus says, if you call your friend a fool, you should be sentenced to hell. It's like you committed murder. Now, remember what we learned. We have learned in the past, I don't know, 47 minutes. We learned that calling someone a fool doesn't mean you just call him a fool. Or you call him an, uh, an imbecile or someone who is mentally impaired. That's not what it, this is about. Jesus uses fool, I think, to mean like everything we learned today. Fool is calling someone a heretic, a misinterpreter of scripture, a misinterpreter of the Torah, which kind of solves the problem, right? Because you see here, Jesus says, whoever calls his friend a fool is liable to hell. But did we not just see just a few slides ago? Jesus calling the hypocrites fool. Did he not just tell us that if you call someone a fool, you're liable to die? I like Madeline that you have your your, your video on and I can see you. It's nice. Uh, 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 it makes me feel less lonely. So I, I say that, right? Jesus just told us 
in Matthew 23, he said, you should never call someone a fool, but we, in Matthew 5, well, we just saw in Matthew 23, he just called the, the, the Pharisees hypocrites and fools. So according to Jesus himself, he's liable to death. So obviously scholars of, uh, of the New Testament said, you know, Jesus is saying that from different sources, we, we don't know what he meant by that, whatever. So we have a few explanations how to explain why he's calling the Pharisees a fool. But then a few in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, whoever calls his friend a fool is, 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 is liable to the, the fire of hell. But if you accept, accept my interpretation of the word fool, to me, a heretic, now let's read Jesus more carefully. Jesus says, whoever says to his brothers or sisters, if you call someone who doesn't deserve it a heretic, if you turn around to your friend and you call him a heretic just for fun, just as an insult, and you call him a misinterpreter of scripture, you need to know that this is important. This is crucial. This is severe. No one should insult someone and call him a heresy and take him out of the camp and saying, you're not one of us. This should be done very, very carefully. You shouldn't do it. If you do it, if you use insults lightly, says Jesus, then you're like a murderer. But notice he doesn't say you should never call someone that, right? This is why maybe Jesus decided in Matthew 23 that the Pharisees very much deserve to be called fools. And this way he's not, he does not liable to hell because they indeed, says Jesus in Matthew 23, I think you are misinterpreting scripture. So indeed you are fools. So Jesus is entitled to call them fools because he really means to say that they are heretics. But so this is how I, 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 I make peace between Matthew 23 and Matthew 5, where Jesus says no one should use insults lightly, and especially not that specific insult. Because that specific insult indicates heresy. That specific insult indicates taking someone out of the camp, saying, you are you are a hypocrite, you are a, a, a heretic by misinterpreting scripture. So when you say someone fool, you should very much want to mean it. Like I meant it in Matthew 23 when I called the, the, the Pharisees. That's okay. But when you're doing it to someone who doesn't deserve it, your brother or your sister, your friend, someone who doesn't deserve it, then you are like a murderer because you should never use this lightly. So this kind of solves a mystery in the New Testament uh, uh, this, uh, studies. This is what I tried to suggest. And again, I, I'm going to stop here for a second and, and do a little bit of a publicity to the way I learned the sources. I basically want to show in my, in my study that actually studying rabbinic literature and Christian uh, 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 work side by side actually helps illuminate both sides, right? So I learned from Jesus in Matthew, how to read the insults full in rabbinic literature, right? To not mean mentally impaired, but to mean something else, right? A, a, a heretic, someone who's misinterpreting scripture. But also I use that understanding in rabbinic literature to go back to the New Testament and suggest uh, 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 maybe a solution to something that bothered New Testament scholars. The, the difference between Matthew 5, which it says no one should call a fool, and Matthew 23, what he does is himself. So again, studying New Testament and rabbinic literature side by side is often uh, helps illuminate both sides. So this is just a little side note about the way I learned the sources and, and how they can help illuminate side by side. And especially when we're talking about heresy and we're talking about the right interpretation of scripture.
Lastly, I want to use this and, and kind of summarize what we saw today before we basically prepare the ground for next week when we start reading uh, a heretic story or two that I chose from my book and, and, and say, okay, so this is what we've uh, prepared, you know, prepared ourselves for. We look at medium stories or the, the stories that I've chosen to look at in my book and we say these stories um, have something to do together with the fact that they use the word fool in them. They are especially insulting and insulting in the sense that these stories want to portray heresy. They want to portray heretical views that the rabbi want to argue against. So th this is how we're going to look at these stories. They're not um, um, weird little funny stories where someone is presented as mentally impaired. No, this is not about that at all. The use of the term mean heretic and the use of the word fool as insult as we just saw today in the past hour. We saw that these are heavily laden terms or heavy, heavy terms uh, that have a lot of significance. When you call someone a heretic, when you call someone a fool, this is what it means. And this is how I think meaning story or heretic stories in the Talmud should be understood. Lastly, we're going to use a uh, 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 um, parallel Christians writing over time to understand what the rabbis are fighting against. And in order to do that, I want, to, I want to kind of conclude with St. Gregory. Obviously, he didn't look like that. This is what um, uh, people later in medieval time thought he looked like. But this, he was a, a bishop in the fourth century in Asia Minor, uh, today Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And St. Gregory was very important, uh, St. Gregory Nyssa. And he talks about the Holy Spirit, but look what he says about his contemporary heretics. It may indeed be undignified to give any answer at all to the statements that are foolish. Notice the word he uses, foolish, right? He wants to talk about statements that he doesn't like, that he wants to argue against about the Holy Spirit. And he will argue that the long treatise about the Holy Spirit. But he starts by saying, some people say it's not worth arguing with those foolish statement. Notice the word foolish again. And foolish again is not going to be used here to mean stupid or mentally impaired. No, this is not a misunderstanding. This is a misinterpretation and a, 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 a really heretical view. We seem to be pointed that way by Solomon's white is white. Do not answer a fool according to his fully right. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't bother. But there is a danger why do I bother? Why do I write this tweet about the whole Holy Spirit against people who are arguing against it? Lest through our silence, error may prevail before the truth. And so the rotting store of this heresy may invade it. Notice how the semantic field of foolish and heresy is combined, right? When someone says foolish things, this is heretical things. Right? They're misinterpreting scripture. It's heretical. They invade it and make havoc of the sound word of the faith, right? So he says, Gregory says, I can't let go. I can't just ignore it. This is heresy. I have to fight against it, this foolish uh, statement. It has appeared to me, therefore, to be imperative to answer, not indeed according to the folly of these men who offer objection of subscription for our religion, but for the correction of the de depraved ideas. So Gregory says, I have to correct their depraved ideas, their heresy, their foolish. Uh, 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 it's imperative to do that. For the advice quoted above from Proverbs, right? Don't answer fools. Gives, I think, the watchwords not for silence, but for the correction 
for those who are displaying some sort some stored act of folly. Our answer that is are not to run to the level of their foolish conception, but rather to overturn those unthinking and deluded views as to doctrine. So said Gregory, and I think I want to use Gregory to talk about stop sharing and kind of conclude. I think I want to use Gregory to say this is we have a bishop in the fourth century explaining why he's about to argue with Christian heretics of his time and, and, and offer some, some kind of correction to their views. And he calls them heretics. And he wants to say, I you know completely disagree and their views are foolish, but he wants to say the foolish views equals heretical views. This, and there is a danger in those views because they can infest the true faith, right? And he says, I have to fight against it. And he uses the word foolish and heretical in the same canonical field. And I think meaning stories are the equivalent of what the rabbis are doing at the same time period, right? Late antiquity, the first century C, the rabbis are doing a very similar thing. They're calling some views heretical, minut, they're calling some views foolish, heretical, not stupid, but misinterpretation, and they're fighting against it. And this is, and how they do it, what way, this is what we'll look at. And this is what my book looks like, and we're gonna study together how they do it. But I think this is how these stories should be understood, both foolish to mean heretical, and also uh, in the sense of uh, this entire project of fighting against heretical views, just like Gregory tried to do. Chaya, I think I'm done. Do we have any questions? Uh, not any in the chat, but maybe if we can wait for a moment just to give. If anyone wants to ask a question, now is your time. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Aren't the rabbis um, that they're generically against all heretics, um, and that sometimes when they talk about Minim, they're talking about Karaites, and sometimes Sumerians and sometimes Christians, but they don't have to follow any rules about how they define heresy. So what's a heresy, right? So what's, what, how do they define heresy? The truth is, I think we need to learn from the examples they give us, right? When they call a heretic a heretic, and then they bring the heretical view that they fight against, we need to collect all those views and see what makes a heretic a heretic. So I did that in my book for five stories that have this full ingredient in them. And I can point out certain Christian views of the time, mostly that had to do with who God loved more, right? The, the, as if God abandoned the Jewish people when he went to the, so that appears often. Um, uh, halachic views, some halachic views of the Christian interpret differently. Um, so we have a few stuff that the rabbis label heresy. And this is how I know what they mean by heresy. But the fact that they call all of these views in one name, a mean, mm -hmm. suggests that they view them all together in a pile of heresy. Yeah. Good. Good question. Thank you. Any other questions? 
Madeline, go ahead. I also had a question about kind of the emergence of this notion of minute, um, which you then specifically in these stories argue that this is that they're thinking about Christians. Um, because I'd read scholarship that kind of places the development of minute heresy as a concept much later as kind of a Christian creation, and we see it with Justin Martyr, and then it moves into the rabbinic tradition. And you, by kind of creating this constellation of terms rather than a single term, put the start date much sooner that with the Dead Sea Scrolls and in Second Temple Judaism, you're kind of seeing all kinds of people engaging in saying, my group has the right interpretation, and you guys are really out in like a much stronger sense than merely we're different kinds. My kind is the only kind. Wonderful question, and I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, thank you so much for asking it because it has to do with terms. Right? When people say the invention of heresy, they they often connect it to the term, a specific term, right? Heresy. And the problem with heresy is that it uses uh, uh, a word that's very heavily laden in Christian later Christian tradition, which is heresiology, where they're, they're, the Christian tried to map out the different kinds of heresy against Christianity, and people find it a little bit uh, unnerving to use it in Jewish context because they say we don't actually have a parallel of that mapping of different heresies, so maybe we shouldn't use that word. I had a, 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 a bad dilemma when I started working on meaning stories. I had to translate me, right? So I, I turned to a very a scholar that I love very much, and I said, well, what should I do? And she said, you know, you should use M-I-N, right? Just transcribe that to me, me, me. And I kind of, he said, this is the safest thing. You don't have to translate, just use it as it. I said, you know what, that's a copy. And I'll tell you why I don't like copies. And I learned this from a different Christian scholar who taught me that, and, and she, she dealt with the term race in, in the New Testament and ethnos and how to translate that. And she said, we, we stopped using the word race and we still use the Christian word ethnos because we know that race, especially in the 60s and 70s, was so late that we didn't want to use that word anymore, so we turned to ethnos. And she's going back and she brings it back and she says, her name is Christine Gull, and she writes a book and she says, what is race? And she says, I want to go back to using race. Why? Because, and I, and I chose the same decision in my book to call it heresy and heretic. Why? Because the word mean meant something in ancient time. It was supposed to give you a kick in the, in the, in the gut, right? You were supposed to read this and be very insulted. It meant someone called you a heretic. And when I use the word mean, which is kind of par and doesn't mean anything to us because we're very careful not to, to and it, it's good that we're careful, but we lost the insult side of it. So I chose to translate heresy, even and being very careful of not doing the Christian heresiology, and, and she's not doing race, and then, but it was an insult, and it did mean heresy in the time. So this was, a, I don't know, a, a brave or stupid decision of my part to use heresy, and I, I specifically use it because I wanted to. And I, I love your question because it has to do with terms. So when was heresy invented? It's a good question. The term heresy, as a heresy, minut, appears in rabbinic literature. And that all the terms that I showed before are different terms. They use fool, they use local they use hypocrite, they don't use the word min, minut. Minut appears only in rabbinic terms. And heresiology does appear later, just in martyr, you know, uh, second, temp, uh, second, second century. But uh, uh, Christian theology really becomes uh, more serious, you know, uh, later on, and, and we don't have a parallel to that in rabbinic literature. So, but does the appearance of a term 
signal the, the, the invention of the thing itself. Not necessarily saying I'm right and the others are wrong. Dead Sea Scrolls are full of it, right? The sons of light, the sons of darkness, and dualism, and it's all over the place in Second Temple literature, even if the word heresy doesn't appear. So it's a question, when does heresy get invented? Does it have to be aligned with the question of, uh, of the term itself? Now, obviously, we can't say that because, you know, putting borders and saying you're beyond that border, border and you're not one of us existed always in humanity. And, and we have it in different social when it comes to, to, to uh, but I don't think we should ignore the term itself, that the rabbis chose to use the word mean. And this goes to the first question we had, to use mean to collect them all under the same roof, under the same term, and use full, and that's a good, that was a good question too, mean something, right? They, they, they chose to do it in a certain way. The mean means something. It works only when I speak about this in English. It doesn't work in Hebrew. So I'm glad to speak about this in English. So the mean means something, right? So, and I want to talk about what it means. So that was a, two very good questions. Thank you. Hi, I think we're done for today. I think so. Thank you so much. Thank you. So fascinating. And I'm really excited for the follow-up. <laughs> and I think, I think it's, I don't think we've had a lot of classes sort of that sort of set it up in the first class and then have the sort of follow-up in the following one. So I'm excited about that. Um, so thank you so much. And thank no, you. No, so I much. also have to say that if you miss, you know, if you're gonna miss the other classes or you know, can skip that one and do the others, if you see it, it's fine. Each class stands on its own, but it's nice definitely, to have yeah. together. Yes, definitely very interesting on its own terms. Um, and I'm excited for more. So thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who joined us. Um, and I just want to give a quick description of the We've got a bunch more classes this week, which are also very excited. Uh, we've got one on, on temporary Jewish-Catholic relations, uh, perspectives about poverty from Jewish sources, um, a text and writing workshop with Amy Gottlieb, a Talmud share with Rabbi Leah Sarna, and the beginning of our new lecture series, Slavery Through Jewish Eyes with Dr. Aviva ben -Ur. Um, So you can see all of these and more uh, at 5783.dreshet.org. Uh, and we are, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank See you. you. Next week. Thank you.